Hi, I'm Dr. Eddie in Oregon. I'm one of the elders, and uh, today I'm going to be talking to you about the anatomy of grace and to use that as a framework for our discipleship. I've chosen two passages today to, in, to start with, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, and the two are bound together by the notion of grace, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So hear now God's word. From Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then from John 1, beginning in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him, and he cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from, from, for from his fullness we have all received grace, Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, only God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to speak to the congregation. Thank you for um, all the technology that um, makes it possible for people to even hear this from their homes. Thank you for all your blessings that uh, your grace may abound. In Jesus' name. So the last time I spoke to you, we actually read from Genesis 6 about biblical cardiology, the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we talked about how the heart is kind of the control center within our thinking that guides the rest of our thoughts. Today I thought we'd switch from the topic of cardiology to the topic of anatomy. And uh, since I'm a doctor that meant I actually took anatomy. And I had the privilege of learning anatomy from Dr. Dallas, Dallas Bushy uh, in the, at the University of Vermont. Now, Vermont's kind of a different place. I mean, it was, it's even different now, but back then it was even different. Um, Dallas Bushy actually never made it past the eighth grade. And uh, he decided, for whatever reasons, hardship in his life and his family, uh, to abandon school and to get a job. Well, he ended up getting a job in the anatomy lab. And his job would be at night to go and clean up the anatomy lab. And, uh, you know, he'd kind of look around. And a lot of times the students would come at night to cram and, you know, learn about anatomy at night. So he'd talk to the students and he'd look at the anatomy books. And eventually he got a few of anatomy books of his own and started studying anatomy. Um, before you know it, the students uh, found out that the best time to study anatomy wasn't during the day with the professors, but to go 
at night and study with the janitor. And they would sit around and talk anatomy. And little by little, the faculty got notice that this guy really knows anatomy. So by the time that I got there, uh, they introduced him and they said, this gentleman knows more anatomy than all of us together. And so uh, all, this, all of this is to say that given some motivation that we as, uh, as individuals, if we apply ourselves, can learn a substantial amount of knowledge, um, if we st- even studying independently or even studying with our brothers. Uh, when we'd go into the anatomy lab, um, uh, it was kind of, Alice Bushy was like E.F. Hutton. You know, he'd walk into the table, start talking. You know, there'd be about 20 tables uh, where we'd all be working and studying anatomy. And he'd walk in and uh, people would stop what they were doing and listen. Well, he's talking to people at the other table. What's he saying? So, you know, all of a sudden the, the room would get quieter and quieter and everybody would come around him. Um, so one of the reasons um, that we disciple people uh, is that they would gain a certain information and also that they themselves would become disciplers. So today I thought I'd pick um, some basic, um, basic doctrines that we should all talk upon uh, or learn about when we're being discipled or discipling others. And those include the five solas, the doctrines of grace, the covenant of grace, and the relationship between grace and the law. And this is to give us a framework to kind of guide our thinking as we disciple. Now, we have the slide here of the, uh, the backbone or the, the spinal column, and you can see that they're one bone that's on top of the other, and they're joined together by various ligaments, and there's various structures that run through the bones and, the, and various structures that attach to the bones. And so this is kind of a good model for how we learn the doctrines that are essential to Christianity. If you affect one part of the spinal cord, if you have one vertebrae that is off a little bit, uh, it kind of makes you a little bit crooked and it affects your walk, your ability to walk. Same, thing, same way, if, you, if you're off on one of these doctrines, your theology is going to become a little skewed and it'll eventually affect your walk as well. So beginning with grace, um, what is grace? Uh, grace, simply put, is unmerited favor. Uh, it seems pretty simple, uh, it, but it's a cent- central distinguishing factor of biblical Christianity. Um, if, we, if we forget about grace, the next thing that happens is that we want to introduce something called works. Uh, and as you, as you can see, works is kind of the opposite of grace, although they're somewhat related. So I kind of created this slide here. I was going to start from the bottom up because it really begins with grace. Uh, it's at the foundation of our theology, and it extends from the Old Testament through the New Testament. So grace is the backbone, and it's a two-part deal. It's unmerited, meaning that we didn't do anything to earn it, and it's favor. It's a better set of circumstances than what we had before. Uh, and even with Noah, where it says that he found favor in the sight of the Lord, even if he had done something that was actually good, he would have to give. He would he would have to attribute 
any action that he did to God, because after all, what do we have that we have not been given by God? In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. So grace is all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. It's unmerited favor. And it's, it's, it's one of the foundations that we have to constantly stay in touch with as we're being discipled and being discipled. Uh, the next issue is faith alone. Uh, well, if it's by grace alone, how could it be by faith alone? These are different categories. It's like if you're making mac- macaroni and cheese. You know, there's the beginning cause, which is grace alone, or the fact that I'm hungry, and then all the intermediate causes. You know, there's the water, the heat, the macaroni, the cheese. There's the cows that made the cheese. Um, and there's the Dutch people who made the cheese from the cows, and so forth. And the end cause is that I got a full tummy. Uh, so in the Bible, it talks about, in Romans uh, 11, I believe, at the end, it talks about that all things are from him and through him and to him are all things. And so there is this kind of causal chain that is even revealed in the Bible. So faith is the means by which God affects salvation. So it starts with grace, but then the intermediate cause is faith. Faith, um, is, the, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, uh, the convictions of things not seen. And in, in Ephesians uh, 2.8, it says we're saved by God's grace through faith, uh, not of our works, let anyone should boast. Now, Faith is not just an irrational leap into the dark. It's not something that we just take a leap in. It's actually something much more complex, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. But everyone has faith. So everybody puts their faith into something. Uh, It's either some other entity, it's some group of ideas, it's even maybe in their own understanding of things. But every makes, everybody makes faith-based commitments about what exists and what's right and wrong and how they justify their knowledge of those things. Uh, we, in particular, have faith in something or someone, and his name is Jesus Christ. Uh, as Christians, we put our faith in Christ alone, not, as, not just as the author and perfecter of our faith, but the one who redeems us and prepares us for the works that have been ordained before the foundation of the earth. In Ephesians 1, 7, we read that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And in uh, Hebrews 9, 14, we read about how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And from Titus, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we're getting all these concepts from Scripture. And Scripture alone is our only authority um, by which we make our decisions about different doctrines. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. Um, But Scripture, we learn about um, Christ, and this Christ's name is called the Word of God. So there's this intimate relationship between God and His Word. Uh, Many other religions have gods or ideas um, that can change their minds, that they're not bound to anything. Um, as, as you get into more of the Eastern religions, they're ideas that are competing with each other. If you get into uh, Greek polytheism, there's different gods that are vying for power. But God's word is a little different. It's unchanging, and it has a law-like characteristic. It endures forever, and the scriptures themselves cannot be glory it cannot be broken so all of this to say is that all these scriptures come together for the purpose of glorifying god that makes sense if it's by god's grace that we've been saved we understand that he is to get all the glory and not us um, another group of ideas uh, that came out of the canons of dort uh, that kind of uh, tell us a little bit about Reform theology or the doctrines of grace. And uh, as you know, those are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And uh, everyone should have these on their fingertips and should have at least a handle of the concepts. It goes by tulip. Sometimes they're called Calvinism, but really didn't come from Calvin although all those ideas are in Calvin's writings. So, um, total depravity. Last week we heard, I think it was from Psalm 53, and so we had a great exposition of total depravity. And, And part of the idea is that after the fall, sin has affected every part of our thinking and every part of our our being. It's like having a broken vertebrae is going to affect every other part, every other vertebrae. It's going to cause them to lean the wrong way and eventually collapse. Sin affects every aspect of our thinking. Um, And our actions are going to follow that. Our walk is going to follow that. That's not to say people can't do things that appear to be good. You know, good deed, um, has to be consistent with God's precepts, uh, but it also needs to be recognized that God has given you the ability to do that deed, and at the end cause is going to be God's glory. So some people could sometimes help the little lady across the street, but it's more so that the TV cameras can watch so that they can get points for the next election. Um, um, So the the reason is, is a little different. Um, understanding total depravity helps us get the next idea 
pretty quickly is this unconditional election is just basically saying that we weren't chosen um, by any condition of our own. So if we read in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4 to verse 6, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Actually, if you go through that first passage of Ephesians, it's all he, 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 he. Actually, I think if you count them out there 10 times, I haven't gone through the Greek to figure out if it's really is he. So it really is God working to save us. There's no part about me in there. Um, and um, being predestined, being predestined as adoption, for adoptions as sons through Christ leads us to the idea of limited atonement. Now, people go back and forth with the limited atonement thing. Some people say, yeah, I'm a, I think, what is it, a, a four-letter Calvinist. They kind of, they're tulips instead of tulips. And, uh, um, but, or they wonder about, well, in what sense is the atonement limited? It's not limited in, the effect, in, a, in its effectiveness. God's sacrifice uh, through Christ is thoroughly effective, but it is limited with regards to who that sacrifice is applied to, and it's being applied to those who have been adopted and predestined from before the foundation of the earth. Uh, so some people like to use the term definitive atonement, but I think that comes out as two-dip and so there's something kind of awkward about that. Um, and again, these all fit in well with irresistible grace, God's saving grace. Hang on. God's saving grace um, is that once we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we've been given ears to hear and eyes to see, that the effective call of the gospel um, becomes clear to us and uh, that we're persuaded of the truth of the gospel by God's grace through faith and repentance in that we're justified. Our sins are forgiven and we've been graciously handed Christ's righteousness. And with all that, the last idea in the um, concept of the doctrines of grace is the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Christ is not only the author and perfecter of our faith. True believers will persevere not by fleshly willpower, but by the will of God and the Spirit of God and the Word of God coming to dwell in them. We are being sanctified continually by the truth, and God's Word is truth. We can be sure that He who started this good work in us will complete it. After all, if God went so far as to send his only son to save us, we can understand that nothing has separated us from the love of God. So that's the introduction to my talk. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, so in anatomy, uh, you learn the skeletal anatomy first, you know, and then after that, you start 
you know, studying all the different nerves and the blood vessels and muscles that get attached to, to the anatomy. And in that, you go back and you have to review the anatomy. You know, you have to review back the skeletal anatomy and say, oh, like, well, what's this bump here? And why is this hole here? And so, well, that hole's for an artery, this hole's for a nerve, and this bump is so that a muscle can attach to it. Well, what muscle attaches that bone? So on the second round, you actually get to learn the skeletal anatomy again from a whole variety of different angles. Uh, just to give an idea, you know, just in the, in the head, there's what are called the 12 cranial nerves. So you have to learn all the nerves and which orifices or which openings they pass through. Uh, there's actually uh, this artery called the maxillary artery, and it has 17 branches. And so we get to learn the 17 branches of the maxillary artery. That's always like, okay, you got the 17 branches. Uh, and then the scapula itself has 17 muscles that attach to it. So you have to learn where they attach and which muscles they are. So as you do that, you learn the scapula bone much better as you learn all the different facets. So now that we've looked at the backbone of Reformed biblical Christianity... Uh, we can see if we can try to put some meat on the bones. Uh, and I'm not going to go through each one because we'd be here till after lunchtime. Um, but I thought we'd go through a few just to give you an example how you develop these ideas as you go through discipling. Um, let's take a look at faith. Uh, we'll read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, where it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and, which, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So when we look at these passages, we can dig in a little bit more into, well, what is this faith? You know, well, faith traditionally is understood as understanding, accepting, accepting to be true, to the extent that we actually trust in something. So it's understanding, accepting, and trusting. But that understanding is comes from hearing the word of God. So in Romans 10, 17, we hear that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God, depending on which translation. Uh, but that hearing is a hearing of understanding. And one of the purposes of discipleship is that we would understand. We would understand what the word says, and we would understand doctrines. Um, uh, one of the ways we go, uh, one of the ways that we increase our understanding is through application. So, you know, if you're involved in any sport, you can read about the sport, you can uh, watch videos about the sport, but until you get on the mat and actually try the moves and actually work them together, you don't really know the sport. The same thing with our faith is that we can learn all these doctrines, but until we learn them to the degree that we're applying them on a daily basis, we don't really know them. So part of that is, uh, 
is applying our doctrine. So in Colossians chapter 1, we read, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here Paul is praying that we would grow in wisdom and understanding, but that we would also uh, walk our walk in relation to that, and in that we're learning more about what we're trying to learn. We can look at faith alone and remember that everyone has faith, and this has an effect on our apologetic. As you know, at Branch, we like presuppositional apologetics, and part of the presuppositional process is to understand what we've already said is that everybody makes faith-based decisions, and the goal is to try and get the unbeliever to uh, to recognize that and to um, and to try and uh, and recognize that they haven't really thought their faith through very well and that their faith is inconsistent with their precepts. Um, the other thing about, well, let's see, did I get these out of order? That's terrible. Um, okay, here we go. As Christians, we understand that we, under, we understand, accept, uh, and trust that Christ is our Lord. And as Lord, we, we, uh, we recognize that he has been given all authority. So people have faith in Christ, uh, and they have faith in the grace that he's given us, and they have uh, faith in the atonement, um, but they sometimes struggle with the idea of having faith uh, faith in Christ as being our Lord. And um, so as Lord, we recognize that all authority has been given to Christ and that he is one with the Father and that he is sovereign over all things. Not only is God transcendent in his authority, his power and control, but the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us is personally present through his word and his spirit. Like grace, God's triune nature as well his transcendence and immense are distinguishing features of biblical Christianity. So one of the things as you're discipling is like, well, what's different about Christianity? Well, the big one is grace, right? It's, you know, it's not of works. Most world religions are about works. But also we have a God who's both transcendent and namely in his power and authority. And we have a God who's imminent. He's there present with us. We also... In order to have this all happen, we have uh, a triune God. And I'm not going to get too much in the Trinity because Daniel Adrian's going to do that at our next um, apologetics conference on Friday evening, September 16th. Just putting a quick little commercial. Um, But we learn about all these things um, from Scripture. And when people get off track in Christianity, they usually make one of three errors. One is that they add works. That one's pretty uh, straightforward and thereby diminishing grace. The second is they question the deity of Christ. Uh, you know, so that's it's another common 
like left turn people make. And finally, they reject some aspect of Scripture. Uh, and we basically have four basic doctrines of Scripture. One is the authority of Scripture. That means that Scripture itself is true, and because of, it truth, of its truth, it creates a circumstance under which we need to be obedient to the truth. Uh, scripture itself is also sufficient that we don't really need any more authoritative revelation from God. God gives us understanding. Uh, he puts us in certain circumstances in our lives that when we sit there and we look to the Word of God, we go, oh, this is where this applies. We may have read it, we may have thought about it, but we go, this is like, we get this insight as to what that word has to do because of the circumstances in our life. But scripture itself is sufficient with regards to the category of authoritative revelation from God. Scripture is necessary. Um, It's necessary because with our own resources, we cannot um, come to the knowledge of God. That's why we need the Word of God. If you, if you start to think that Scripture is not necessary, well then, and being that Scripture is intimately related to the Word of God, meaning Christ, then you can kind of conclude, well, maybe Christ is not necessary. Maybe there's another means for salvation. So you can see how these things are linked together. And finally, Scripture is clear, meaning that even a child can understand it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to work hard at trying to understand some of these doctrines. It just means that the basics are understandable. So keeping it, getting back to our medical analogy, Scripture is like the DNA that informs all of our doctrines and and instructs it to be built, our doctrines to be built in a particular way. Uh, and part of the process of discipleship, kind of like what we're doing today, is going back from a doctrine to Scripture or from Scripture to a doctrine. So there are a variety of ways to do discipleship. We have a, a Wednesday night meeting, and it's usually a topical meeting. So usually we begin the class with, like, does anybody have a question and then a topic comes up, and then we try and go through the Bible and see, well, what does the Bible say about that particular topic? On Thursday morning, we go the other way. We've been actually, you know, we started, I think it was in Luke, and then we went through various books of the Bible, and then intermittently we would go back and forth to the other Gospels. Um, Went through the uh, New Testament, and then um, we've gone back to the Old Testament, and now we started in Genesis and we're in Job. And so when we start those studies, we start with, well, what is this passage saying? And then we go and say, okay, well, what are these doctrines that are in this passage? And then from there, we go, well, what does the whole counsel of God have to say about these doctrines? And so we'll usually start somewhere in the Old Testament and work our way in the New Testament to understand those doctrines. The other way of, of, uh, of discipling is just to start with our current life events, you know, as you're discipling someone. So, you know, what's going on in your life and trying to look, link that all back to doctrine and scripture. So in scripture, we learned that long ago, 
This is a slide from Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Here again, we learn about the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of revelation through Christ. The effectiveness of his atoning work and that he is the exact representation and radiance and the glory of the glory of God. So if you remember from Genesis, Adam was made in the image of God. And after the fall, Adam sinned and that image was marred and that image was marred to all men and, uh, and everyone's image of God was marred. The good news is uh, from Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here we can see even as we're going through and we're now kind of moving on to the glory of God, you know, we can see you know, all of these other topics that we've talked about, about man's depravity, about, about uh, God's atoning work, and so forth, uh, about the deity of Christ. All of those are intermixed in each one of these, uh, these passages. So as we seek to glorify God alone, we look to the Word of God to be transformed to the image of Christ. We could go through the same process for all of these doctrines. So the goal here is to kind of just get the general idea. Uh, But I thought we'd now switch from uh, these doctrines to the doctrines of the covenant of grace. Uh, The covenant of grace is like the spinal cord that runs through all of those vertebrae. It runs from the very beginning of the Bible until the end. Um, and as you didn't, as you notice, I broke a little bit of tradition by having two passages as our starting passages: one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and the two of them are connected by the notion of grace. And grace isn't really or favor isn't mentioned to um, until Genesis six, but grace appears all the way in the beginning. Adam did nothing to merit the wonderful, very good creation that God placed him in. He never merited the privilege to walk with God. And he never merited the covering of his sin and the promise of a redeemer that was given to him in Genesis 3. So as we talk about the covenant of grace, um, it runs from the Old Testament through the New Testament And salvation has always been by God's grace, through faith. So some people get this notion that, well, in the Old Testament, it was by works, and now in the New Testament, it's something new's developed now. It's it's been there from the very beginning. 
Because Abraham believed in God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Um, so if you're going to um, be going out and making disciples, you should have a basic understanding of three main covenants. And one of them is the covenant of grace. The other one is the intra-Trinitarian covenant of creation or redemption that God you know, would create, that man would fall, that uh, Christ would be sent, and that the Holy Spirit uh, would embody us. Uh, and that's the historical outworking of the covenant of grace. But standing alongside the covenant of grace is the covenant of works. And uh, that is that, yes, if you were truly obedient, and if Adam been truly obedient, he would have passed on or been accepted to a different state. But we know that state is actually uh, alluded, that Adam actually never made that, that uh, state. So, but there is one who did, uh, that is Christ. So the covenant works requires perfect obedience, and Christ is the one that actually um, uh, exacted that perfect obedience. And so um, that brings us to kind of almost our final point, and that is the relationship between God's grace and his commandments. Now, it seems as though these things are a little bit at, at odds or different, but again, just as like we have this order, we need to keep the law in its proper order and perspective. It's never been thought as a means of establishing our own righteousness. Uh, it's always been by grace. But it's downstream. We can, uh, you know, being that we, as we read in Romans that we're wanting to be transformed to the image of Christ so that we can glorify God and that Christ is the radiance and glory of God, that we as God's image bearers want to be saying something properly about, about God. We want to be radiating or transmitting something positive or something true about God's nature. And so part of that is being conformed to the image of Christ. And part of that is, well, who's Christ? He's the perfect lawgiver. So it would follow that when God puts his spirit in us and he takes out our heart of stone and give us, gives us a heart of, of flesh, that he is also going to have us walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. In uh, 1 Timothy, we read that, for we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully. So again, the law has its place in our, our system of belief and our system of salvation. And in John 4.15, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then later in John, 1 John 5.3, it says, For this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So the law is good as long as you use it properly. The next time you go back and read Exodus 33, you know, the part where Moses asks God to show him his glory, and God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. I'm going to be gracious, and I'm going to be merciful until, to whom I uh, please. Well, the very next thing that happens, if you forget the chapter work there, is that God says, go and make two tablets. You know, so God's law is a gracious gift to us. 
It's, it's something that we didn't merit. It's a gracious gift, not for the purposes of establishing our righteousness, but for other reasons. Um, and so, uh, as you can see that, that uh, from our passage in John, that we received through Christ, we received grace. It's Christ taking on flesh and being a representative of God for us so we can see how the, God, the law is applied uh, upon grace, which is the law of Moses. So the law for Moses was a gracious gift. To see how the, God, how the law is applied through Christ is also a gracious gift, among other things. So um, the law serves as a perfect standard to remind us for a need as a savior. So, you know, when we look at the law and we study it, um, I don't know, Mike, you, that guy's, you know, he's up there. We all, we all are sinners. So we, we all are constantly reminded for our need for a savior. The law also serves as a standard for the magistrate to inhibit the evil in society. Uh, we can just see that here in LA. They're not you know, they're not prosecuting people. They're not taking the law in serious, and we're getting more and more lawlessness. Um, and finally, the law serves as an objective standard to govern our thoughts and interactions with each other. Again, the law was never meant um, for the purposes of establishing our own righteousness. It's always been by God's grace through faith in Christ. Uh, the works, whatever works we do, have uh, been prepared from before the foundation of the world for the purposes of glorifying God. So in summary, we've looked at the backbone of Reformed Christianity as represented by the five solas and the doctrines of grace. We also expanded on these doctrines by going back and forth uh, from doctrine to scripture. We've looked at the covenant of grace as the spinal cord that runs from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And finally, we've touched upon the role of the law as the ligaments that hold our culture together, amongst other things. So Christ called us to go out and make disciples. Um, And to do that, we would make disciples with the intention that uh, we would teach them to obey everything that he has commanded. Uh, To make disciples, we need to be prepared to understand and eventually teach others about the gospel of grace. And even though most of us aren't going to be able to attend seminary, which seminary is great, uh, school is great. So none of you like eighth graders get the idea that, you know, you don't really need to go to high school. You could be like Dallas Bushy and become a, a doctor by studying independently on your own for the next 30 years. Uh, uh, you know, School and seminary are great things, yet you know the harvest is great and the workers are few. And so God has called upon a whole uh, vast majority of different types of people. As a matter of fact, he kind of started this process with tax collectors, with fishermen. I heard he even had a doctor in the group there was going around and spreading that stuff. So we all need to be a little bit like Dallas Bushy, and we need to pick up our books and study. We need to get together with other brothers and study the Bible diligently so that we can be approved as one of those that can rightly divide the word of truth 
ultimately for his kingdom and for his glory. Thank you. Let's pray. There's going to be no uh, communion today and no benediction, so I'm going to pray for all of us. Um, Heavenly Father, thanks for this opportunity to uh, study your word. Thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon us. Um, let us all let it always be the lenses by which we look at all the other doctrines that we uh, that we learn. Let it also be what informs our day to day activities and that uh, that informs our walk, so that we could walk in a manner that's worthy and that in a manner that truly represents you here on earth. Uh, Lord, we pray for our congregation uh, that they would con- that we would continue to flourish. Uh, we pray for all those. Uh, on the prayer list who have needs. Pray for our pastor and for our nation in Jesus' name.